if you would please turn to your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to the end of chapter 4. Uh, I'm only going to be reading uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And as I mentioned last week, we're going to take big chunks in our study of the book of Isaiah. And one thing you'll notice about the book of Isaiah is that it is fairly redundant. And as we saw last week, Isaiah functions as in the role of a prosecuting attorney against God's people. He, he testifies to their covenant unfaithfulness. He continues this indictment that we'll see in today's reading. And in fact, we'll see the same pattern throughout much of the book of Isaiah. And the pattern is simply this. First, Isaiah brings the charges of sin against God's people. And second, then he pronounces the judgment on this sin. And third, he then declares God's mercy, God's unmerited grace toward the chosen, yet still guilty remnant of the people. And the cycle is pretty much sin, judgment, grace, repeat. And although the the big picture is the same, the details vary. And it's these details that we see God's specific message, both to the nation of Judah as well as to us. And this is what I, I really love about Scripture, all Scripture. It's so very relevant to us today. This letter could have been written directly to us. We commit the same sins that are identified. We suffer and are currently suffering the same consequences, the same judgment on our rebellion against our triune God. But thankfully, thankfully we also experience grace. We experience God's unmerited, undeserved favor. God takes the initiative. God draws us back to himself. God changes our hearts and minds through the Lord Jesus Christ. And as with every sermon I preach, it is Christ and Christ alone who is the hero. And we have the joy. We have the joy today to see our hero in all his splendor through Isaiah's prophecy written some 2,700 years ago. So Isaiah chapter 2 through chapter 4. And again, I'm only reading chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of the things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Let us pray. Oh Lord, yes, we we are being humbled because we rebel against you. And the Lord alone, you alone are to be exalted. And Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for your mercy. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to illuminate us now as we look at these words. I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to to anoint my words so that I will speak your truth. And Father, I pray for each one of us here that we will hear from you. We will have an encounter with you. We will see you and we will be changed. Each of us will be changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, these verses, verses 6 through 8 here of chapter 2, they give us Isaiah's next indictment against Judah. 
And in a word, their sin is syncretism. Syncretism. And this, is, this has always been and currently is really one of the most common sins committed by God's people. And syncretism is basically an amalgamation of, of Christian and non-Christian religions and, and, and Christian and pagan thoughts being squished together into a, a big tent that in the final analysis is diametrically opposed to a Christian worldview, is diametric, diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. And in verse 6, we're told that the house of Jacob, this is God's covenant people, they've been rejected by God. And why have they been rejected? Because they are full of things from the East. Basically, they have adopted the religious practices and the ways of their enemies. And in the historical context, the East here refers to the Syrians, which were the dominant power at this time and in this region. And God's people had failed to remain distinct. They had failed to remain separate. And they had adopted the ways of the powerful during their day. And aren't we the same? As Christians, there is so much temptation for us to imitate the culture, to imitate what is successful in our culture, regardless of what God's word tells us to do. See, we worship the pragmatic. We have the, the attitude, if it works, it must be right. If it's popular, it must be right. And we see much syncretism in the American church, in the worship of American Christianity. Much of Christian worship music is indistinguishable, really, from secular music. You could be singing to your boyfriend, or you could be singing to Jesus. It's almost the same words. The worship experience on Sunday morning in many places is indistinguishable from a Saturday night concert. But God's people are called to be holy, just as God is holy. We are called to be separate. We are called to be sanctified. That means we are to be set apart for holy use, set apart for the Lord. But we do not want to be separate. We do not want to be different. We want to be just like everyone else. We want to be like the ones the world applauds. Those the world deems as successful and influential. We want to be the culture shapers. We want to be the powerful. Whether it's in the entertainment industry, whether it's in media, whether it's in the corporate world, educational institutions, or the civil government. There is always the temptation for the Christian to lose our distinctiveness. And Isaiah continues his indictment in, in verse 6 with a mention of their following fortune tellers, just like the Philistines. And this indictment is really on two levels. The fortune tellers are those who could supposedly predict the future, those who had supposed supernatural power and secret knowledge. Now, in many cases, these fortune tellers were charlatans, just like our modern-day equivalent. They had no power. They were utterly worthless, and they used trickery to fleece the gullible. But in some cases, especially in these pagan nations that opposed God's people, these fortune tellers did actually have real power and possessed a supernatural secret information. However, the source of their power was not coming from God. It was demonic. They could indeed provide temporal benefits, but these benefits, they came at a tremendous cost. And that is bondage to the demons and apart from God's mercy, eternal damnation. And God's people were explicitly forbidden to consult medians and fortune tellers. We tell about this in Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20, and Deuteronomy 18. And consulting with fortune tellers displays a complete lack of trust in the Lord. The Lord alone, the sovereign God of all creation, he alone is all-powerful. He alone is all-knowing. And this wicked unfaithfulness is not only disobedient, it is utterly foolish. And not only is the action itself wicked, but look at who they are emulating. Look at who they want to be like. 
the Philistines. These were God's enemies. The book of Judges, Samson fought the Philistines. David defeated the Philistines' giant, Goliath. And he, as well as much of his reign, fought against the Philistine enemies. God's people are not to try to be like God's enemies. And as Christians, we are not to consult fortune tellers. We are not to practice astrology or consult crystals or horoscopes or New Age mysticism or Ouija boards or the occult. This is wicked and this is not an option for Christians. These things are not sources of power but rather they are a snare to destroy our witness and and can destroy our very soul. They're not harmless fun. This is deadly serious. When my oldest daughter Jessica was in middle school, in her Spanish class, they were learning about Spanish culture, and they were learning about Mexican culture, and they were learning about the, the Mexican holiday, the Day of the Dead. And they had an assignment, and the assignment was actually to make a shrine out of a shoebox as, uh, as an altar to their dead relatives. And this was in a Christian school. Now, needless to say, I went berserk when I heard that, and I happened to be the president of the school board at that time as well. So I was on the phone with the headmaster, and he, he heard from it. Needless to say, they did not do that assignment anymore. But this is not, this, some people might say that this is extreme. It's, it's just a harmless assignment. The kids are, are going to learn about another culture. But this is not harmless. Scripture does not see it as harmless. And Hannah and David, they had to hear when they wanted to watch the Disney movie Coco and it had the Day of the Dead. And I made sure they understood that the Day of the Dead, this is just a movie, but this is something that's real and it's something that is evil. It is something that is demonic. See, Disney's very good at indoctrinating our children and desensitizing them to the dangers of this type of syncretism. They make it look cute. They make it look natural. They don't realize that there's something real there. And Disney is, is doing it now, too, with the normalization of homosexuality and transgenderism. They show the most likable, the most well-adjusted characters. Those are the gay characters. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The physical and the psychological toll that the bondage to this type of sin takes on these poor souls is truly heartbreaking. And Disney doesn't tell you about the, the life expectancy of a gay man. It's only in his 40s. Disney doesn't tell you about the physical problems that happen like having to wear adult diapers due to the trauma caused by unnatural practices done to these bodies. They don't tell you those things. Continuing in verse 6, they say they strike hands with the children of foreigners. This means that they make religious alliances with pagans. They're unequally yoked, as, as we heard in our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians. Paul forbids this type of unequally yoking. This doesn't mean that we must be completely separating. We cannot have any contact whatsoever, any friendship or any interaction with unbelievers. No, not at all. We certainly can and we should. We can work with unbelievers in our secular vocations. We can have business transactions with unbelievers. We can even unite in supporting certain social causes such as pro-life movement or political lobbying with unbelievers. But we cannot be unequally yoked in spiritual matters. We cannot worship together. I could not have a a Muslim imam up here or a a Mormon uh, bishop up here in preaching. We cannot have these interrelational worship, these these interreligious worships services. And we certainly cannot marry. We cannot be involved in romantic relationship with an unbeliever. We cannot be unequally yoked. We see further condemnation in verse 7, which says, Their land is filled with silver and gold. And there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Again, this is another direct violation of God's word. 
Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17 gives a command to the king that God's people are not to inquire many horses. They are not to acquire for themselves excessive silver and gold. See, they are directly violating God's word. And the sin is being condemned here is the sin of self-sufficiency. See, the people gather for themselves much silver and much gold and much horses because in these things they find their security. They're providing for themselves. They're providing for their own security. They trust in themselves and not in God. They trust in their money. They trust in their possessions. In these, they find both their security and their significance. And here's where I'm probably going to offend every single person here in this room, including myself, because I am, often as I tell you I preach, I am right there with you preaching to myself. We do the exact same thing. Our trust and our significance is in our wealth. It's in our possessions. It's in our bank accounts. It's in our houses or our retirement accounts or our stock portfolios or our cars. These are our modern-day silver, gold, horses, and chariots. And yes, we are to be wise in the use of our resources. We certainly are not to be lazy and wasteful. We are to plan for the future. But neither are we to hoard every single dime we make, failing to be generous with those in need, failing to support the work of the kingdom of God, fearful for the future, saying, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to take care of myself. I've got to find my security in my possessions. Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough trouble for today. You remember the story of the rich fool? So many of us are like the rich fool. He tore down his barns to build bigger barns. He said, I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain. And I'll say to myself, my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And I fear many Christians, including many many in this room, are like this rich fool. I feel like I am that way many times. We spend so much effort, so much anxiety, worrying about and seeking to maximize our earthly investments, making sure we can retire in style and enjoy ourselves. And thinking all of this is going to be where we're going to find our security. This is where we're going to find our joy. Not realize that the Lord can take our wealth like that. He can take our health like that. He can take our very lives. How many times do you hear about people who are saving up and, and, and working in jobs they hate, looking for that day they're going to retire. And then when they retire, they get sick and they die. Or they get sick and they can't enjoy their time. Or they lose their money in bad investments. Lord, there is, there, there, is no, there is no security in these things. And these words apply very much to each one of us here. And Isaiah pinpoints the root of their sin in verse 8. It says, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their own hands or what their own fingers have made. And here we see the sin is self-worship. They bow down to the work of their own hands, the things their fingers have made. Self-worship, self-righteousness, wanting to be autonomous, really wanting to be God. That is the sin. That is the fundamental sin of our race. This was a temptation leading to the fall itself. The serpent's temptation to Eve in Genesis 3. Don't trust God. Don't trust his word. Trust yourself. Be true to yourself. And you will just, you'll be just like God. 
Genesis 3, 4, and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the problem. This is the problem of our fallen race. This, even this is the temptation, even for God's covenant people, Israel, and for his church. Each one of us, we must be prayerfully and diligently resist this temptation to trust in ourselves, to be our own God, because this temptation is insidious. A Christian friend of mine shared a list of advice that a parent should give to their children. And most of the things on this were good or innocuous or, or common sense, but there were some things on there that were downright sinister. And I think most Christians wouldn't even recognize it. Maybe some of you might not recognize the, the diabolical content that's, that slipped into this advice. Let me, let me give you some examples. One of them is, it says, fall hard and forever in love with nothing but yourself. That's evil. Fall in love with yourself? No. We are to fall in love in, with Christ. He alone is ultimate, not ourselves. It's real easy to, to love ourselves. That's what we naturally want to do. But we are to love, fall in love with nothing but Christ. The next one is question everything except your own intuition. Except my own intuition. My intuition is always wrong. I'm a sinner. I don't trust my own intuition. I question that most of all. I question it by godly friends. I question it against observations. But most importantly, I judge it by God's inerrant and infallible word. And I find that often, I find that I fall short. Here's another one. You have enough, you are enough. Well, on one sense, that, that's true. You know, if it's talking about to be content. You know, if, if, if I want to be six foot five, I'm not ever going to be that. So I must be content with how God made me, how tall. But that's not what this is talking about. If this is talking about a moral thing, no, not at all. I'm a fallen sinner. I need grace every day. I need it every hour. As I often say, I need it every nanosecond. I'm not enough, not until glory. I'm constantly putting to death my sin. I can't be content with it. Here's another one. You're amazing. Don't let anyone ever make you feel like you are not. If someone does, walk away. You deserve better. That's horrible. How could you ever get better? If I'm a sinner, if, if I'm the standard of reality and someone tells me something different and I just walk away, I'll never get better. And my friends, this is what the world tells us. This is what, again, this is a Christian friend gave me this. This is just another way of saying, I am God. I am the standard of reality. If anyone says anything different, they must be dismissed. And you see, this desire to be God is insidious. It is subtle, and every single one of us is susceptible to this danger. And nothing, and, and this, is the, this is the thing about it, nothing will cut us off faster from grace than this self-worship. It's that dangerous. If I think that I am perfect, I am never going to repent. I am never going to seek to be better. And I'm going to be eternally lost. It is that dangerous. And these three verses that we've looked at, these are the indictment. These are the, the sins that Isaiah points out. These are the sins that, that Judah was guilty of. And these are the sins that we are guilty of. And there's others that we're, that we're going to see in this passage, but I'm just going to focus on these three at this moment and these consequences. So we've looked at the sins. Now we're going to look at the judgment. And notice that this judgment is, is, is the rest of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. There's a lot of judgment here. Now I'm not going to go through every single verse, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at categories the types of judgments described here. And the first type 
And we see this in the remainder of chapter 2. This is direct judgment. And this is final judgment. And this is God's direct humiliation of the wicked. His direct making them low, tearing them down. We see in verse 9 where the man is humbled and each one is brought low. We see in verse 10 where they hide from the Lord in the rocks and in the dust. Also in verse 19 where they, they hide in caves and holes in the ground before the terror of the Lord. And this language should sound familiar to you. This is the same words that we see in, in Revelation describing the final judgment. Let me read these words from Revelation 6. It says, And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling for the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? We see in verse 20, it says on that day, people will cast away their idols, their silver gold, all these things that they made for themselves, all these things that were so important, all these things that they found their security, they will cast them off to the bats and to the moles. See, they'll discover. They'll discover when it's too late. They will discover reality. The reality that these things, these silver, this gold, these horses, these, these works of their hands are utterly worthless. They cannot save. They are of no value on the day of judgment. And my friends, we must learn that lesson now. We must not place our trust in the works of our hands. We must recognize now before it is too late that these things have no eternal value. These things are a snare. And they will deceive us and they will distract us from the only one who is of true value. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is a picture of the direct judgment. The final, it is horrible and it is final. And it is reserved for all who place their hope, who place their trust in themselves or in anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the fate for those people. But this is not the only judgment we see in this passage. There are also intermediate judgments. And in these judgments, I think there is grace. Because these judgments are not final. There is still time to repent. There is still time to return to the Lord and to seek his mercy, to seek his grace. However, sadly, these intermediate judgments often have the opposite effect. See, rather than drawing the sinner back to the Lord in repentance, they often harden the sinner. They harden his rebellion and his arrogance. And we see examples of this, these intermediate judgments in the first five verses of chapter 3. So let's take a look at these. Verse, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all supply of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, and the counselor and the skilled magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes and infants rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, every one his fellow and every one his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and, the, and despised to the honorable. So what does this intermediate judgment entail? Well, verse 1, the Lord is taking away all support and supply. It says he's taking away food and water. See, this is an immediate and it's an unignorable problem. This will get their attention. There's no food, there's no water. 
This shakes them from their arrogant deception that they are somehow self-sufficient. See, famine and drought, they have a way of, of shaking us from our stupor to the reality of the situation. And what will their reaction be to this in the face of this tragedy? Will they call out to the Lord? Will they place their trust in Him? Will they turn from worthless idols? This is the question. See, it can go either way. For some, they will return to the Lord, but for others, they double down in their rebellion and their self-reliance and their hatred to God, and they're shaking their fist at God. And I've personally seen both responses to jarring tragedies. As many of you know, on April of April 16th of 2007, I was on campus during the mass shooting at Virginia Tech that took 32 lives in that community. And I tell you, it was jarring. It was jarring to us. We were hurting. We were looking for answers. And I remember that evening, our church was packed. I mean, it was packed. There were people from the media there. More, more than ever were in that church. And we heard a gospel message. And I know many people came to faith during that tragedy. One girl in particular, I remember she was a freshman when this happened. She was away from home for the first time. And like many freshmen who get to college, she just went crazy. She was partying. She, just, she loved this freedom that she had. And she had a good friend who was killed during the shooting. And this really messed her up. And this friend was a Christian. This friend was someone who, actually, who invited her to a, to a girl's Bible study. And there was witnessing to her. And when her friend was killed... She returned to the Bible study. She went to this campus ministry. She eventually came to faith, eventually went to seminary. And the last I heard, she was in full-time ministry. And this is, this is amazing testimony of how God can bring good out of tragedy. But sadly, this was not the common reaction to the shootings. No, this was, not, this was the exception. The most common response was arrogance, was pride, and was self-promotion. So it was the day after the shootings... There was a big assembly that we had uh, the whole, for, the whole, for the whole campus was there. And President Bush was there, gave a great speech referring to, to, to Scripture, quoting Scripture. Governor Kane, the governor of Virginia, was there. Again, great uh, speech referring to Scripture. And then there was a, a, a Virginia Tech faculty member, a famous poet. If I mentioned her name, you would recognize it. And she gets up and she gives a speech. And at the end of the speech, she says, We are Virginia Tech and we will prevail. And with those words, Satan stole any seed that was planted. The window was closed. The spiritual openness that we saw the day before, it was gone. I mean, it was, it was so clear. It was replaced by a hard-hearted pride. People were like, we're Virginia Tech. We're going to prevail. It's about us. It's about how good we are. It was horrible. It was so sad to see that. It was almost as sad as, as, the, as the shootings themselves to see this reaction. And my friends, we're living in perilous times. We have just come through a global pandemic that has killed tens of millions of people. We don't know if there's going to be another variant that's going to come in. There's a war between Russia and Ukraine that has a very real possibility of drawing in NATO, becoming a nuclear war. The, the, the world is closer to nuclear war now anytime since the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Any, and most of the people here in this room, the, the closest it's been in our lifetime. We are... We are facing increasingly violent and, and unpredictable storms. Just as my friend Steve Wilder, he thought he moved to a place that was relatively secure, just got hit with two hurricanes in the last few months. And we see these storms increasing due to climate change. And any one of these factors can escalate into a crisis, exposing the utter folly of our self-reliance. And will we respond by, by falling on Christ and repentance, or will we double down in our, our self-worship 
and self-reliance. In addition to God's judgment affecting our resources and our support and our supply, we see God's judgment affecting our leaders. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. It says, God will remove the mighty man and the soldier. He's going to take away our protection. There will be a breakdown in the police and in the military. And we saw a small taste of this in the summer of 2020. With all these riots and violence in many American cities and cries to defund the police and remove the police. This is sign of judgment. It says God will remove the judge. The judges uphold justice. God's judgment will remove righteous judges and bring corruption of justice. Again, we've seen glimpses around the world, even in our own country. We've seen judges remove children from parents because they would not affirm the child's gender identity. There are laws in, in some states that make it a crime if you refuse to defy reality and use a person's preferred pronouns, even when these pronouns contradict biology. It says God will remove the prophet, the diviner, the elder. This is affecting the church now. The prophet is the person who boldly proclaims God's revelation as found in Holy Scripture. The diviner is the theologian who can apply the, the teachings of Scripture in a systematic way to the current threats and attacks facing the church. The elder is the, the leader of the, the local church who, who shepherds and protects God's people from the ravenous wolves seeking to devour them. And are we not seeing this judgment today? The majority of so-called Christian churches and Christian leaders simply entertain, simply tickle ears. God's word is abandoned in favor of worldly advice. False shepherds and hirelings are, are the norm in church leadership. And the wolves have nearly unchallenged reign. We are seeing this judgment. Verse 4 says, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. This is speaking about their civic leaders. These are the princes. And these leaders will be, both, will be inexperienced, ignorant, and immature. Again, we are experiencing this judgment at this very moment. I can't think of a, of a verse that better describes our national leaders at this time. We see behavior by elected officials, including presidents of the United States, that more resemble the behavior of delinquent middle schoolers than it does adults, including, let alone, statesmen. This is God's judgment. My friends, we are getting the leaders we deserve. In verses 14 through 17 of chapter 3, we see additional indictments against God's people. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. It said, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the God of hosts. And here we see judgment against unjust exploitation of the poor and weak. And notice that this judgment is specifically against the elders and the princes. This is the judgment on the leaders of the people, both the religious leaders, that is the elders, and the civic leaders, the princes. These leaders are both are, are the ones who, who enact policies that favor the wealthy and exploit the poor. For example, James in his epistle condemns partiality shown in the church. James chapter 2, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, while to the poor man you say, Stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In legal dealings, Exodus 23 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in lawsuits. 
Keep far from false charges, and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. See, as Christians, we are not to exploit the poor. We are not to show partiality, but rather, we are to provide assistance. We are to show mercy on the poor, especially those poor who are believers. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to state that failure to do this is actually a sign that one is not regenerate. One does not belong to Christ. Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And to the goats who are on his left, he says, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and, and in prison and you did not visit me. Then he will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And this last indictment that we see in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. Take a look at these verses, 16 and 17 of chapter 3. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along with as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. And here we see the sin of vanity. It's haughtiness. And notice that it's directed not at the men, but at the women, at the daughters of Zion. It says they walk with, with outstretched necks, desiring attention, looking down on others. They glance wantonly with their eyes. The Hebrew literally means they ogle lustfully. To, they, they covet. And I can't help but think about our social media and, and, and selfie-driven generation creating this, this illusion of, of perfect beauty fueled by internet filters and excessive cosmetics and, and plastic surgery. And we see the judgment of this wickedness in verses 17, really through the end of the chapter. In verse 17, it says, The, the Lord will strike with a scab on the heads of the daughters of Zion. This means there's this going to be some kind of skin disease that they are going to get, perhaps even leprosy, causing all this beautiful hair to fall out and for them to be bald. And this judgment here really implies a conquest by an enemy. Because in ancient times, the, the conquerors, they would basically strip their, their prisoners naked and march them out of the city, really to humiliate them. And this is what we're seeing. They, they are stripped of their, their fine jewelry. We read in verses 18 to 24, it says, In that day the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, perfume boxes, Amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festal robes, mantles, cloaks, handbags, mirrors, linen garments, turbans, veils. And instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, a branding instead of beauty. So these fine, well-dressed, haughty women will be utterly humiliated. They will be stinking. They will be bald. They will be naked. They will have all their fine accessories stripped away from them. And as I mentioned, this appears to be a foreign conquest because in addition to the humiliation of the women, we see the slaughter of the men. Look at verses 25 and 26. 
Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And because of this slaughter, men are going to be scarce. So verse, chapter 4, verse 1, we read, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. See what's happening. It's saying seven women will want to marry one man. And they won't even expect their husbands to support them. To say, no, we'll, we'll support ourselves. We just need to be married. That's how desperate they are. And this is a horrible situation. Isaiah is not holding back. He's not painting a pretty picture. It's, it's a picture that shows where sin and rebellion will lead us. And it's a horrible picture. This is where sin and rebellion goes. This is the consequences of sin and rebellion. But there's also grace here. There's grace in these intermediate judgments. They're not final. They're not eternal. There's still time for repentance. There's still time to return to the Lord in faith. There's still time to receive mercy. Now, sadly, the majority in in Judah were not softened by these judgments, but rather they were further hardened. Just as we see today, many not repenting when they experience tragic sufferings, but rather they double down in their sin and rebellion against God. But thankfully, thankfully, this is not the reaction of all. God takes the initiative, and God preserves a remnant. He preserves a righteous branch. And here we see grace. Here we see Christ. Here we see the gospel. Tucked amid all this sin, all this judgment, we find grace. Take a look at verse four, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, even who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. And here we see the remnant. Here we see the remnant called the branch of the Lord. And just as we've seen in our our gospel reading, from John chapter 15. Jesus is divine, but we, his people, we are the branches. We are the remnant. We are those who, who have been changed by grace to become uh, branches. And these branches, we abide, abide in the vine. And if we abide in the vine, we will be nourished by the vine. And, the, and this nourishment will enable the branches to bear fruit. See, the source and the power all comes from Christ and Christ alone. But we abide in Christ by faith and by reliance upon him. And then we become these branches that produce fruit. In verse 4, this branch is identified as everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. And this is similar to the words we hear at the end of the book of Revelation about those whose names are written in the book of life. And this is a reference to God's eternal decree of election, without which there would be no remnant. Because all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But God takes the initiative and he chooses a remnant, not based on anything foreseen in them, but solely on the basis of grace. And this is the illustration of unconditional election. 
And that those who God has unconditionally elected and recorded for life, and those only, God redeems by the blood of Christ. He does this through the atonement, the limited atonement. And it's not limited in power. No, it's limited in purpose. It's limited only to the elect. It's not universal. And we see this atonement in verse 4. It is described as the Lord washing away their filth and and cleaning their bloodstains. And this is done in the midst of the spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. This is, a, this is a reference to the cleansing, the refining power of God's judgment. These, these intermediate judgments that are designed to get their attention. And the people receive at the hand of the Lord to bring them back, to come to him, to, to come to him in repentance. Not for their destruction, but for their discipline and for their restoration. In verse 5, the mention of the cloud by day and the flaming fire at night. This is a, a reference to God's leading the Israelites during the Exodus. And this leading will continue for God's redeemed. See, we're not saved and just left alone. No. God rather leads us. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. He leads us by his Holy Spirit. And the Lord is not only our guide, but he is also our protection. As we see in verse 6, he is our booth for shade, protection from the scorching sun. He is our refuge. He is our shelter from the storm and rain. See, we don't have to worry about all these things that are going on, that, that, that can hurt us. He is our protection. If we are in him, we are eternally secure. So what does this mean for us? We, we've just gone through three chapters, chapters that were written 2,700 years ago to God's rebellious people. But as I mentioned, they could have been written today. They could have been re- written to us, God's current rebellious people. And we must recognize that we face the same temptations, the same temptations to self-worship, Same temptations of self-reliance. We face the same temptations to unfaithfulness to the Lord. And we must cling mightily to him. Cling mightily to Christ and Christ alone for our security and for our significance. But we must also understand, and here's our hope. We must understand that the power to resist temptation, the power to remain faithful, comes not from us, but comes from him. See, Christ takes the initiative. We are able to cling to him because he is clinging to us. He is holding us. We desire him only because he desired us and he changed our desires. Scripture tells us that he who calls us is faithful and that he will surely do it. My friends, this is our confidence. This is our hope. This is our security. This is our joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you. Lord, we thank you that you have been the one who provides for us. You are the, it is Christ and Christ alone. Left on our own, we would all fall. Left on our own, there is nothing that we would desire in you. But Lord, you have come. You have taken the initiative. And Father, I pray that we will be faithful. I pray for every single one of you. If there's anyone who hears my voice who is not a believer, Lord, that you will change that now. You will change their hearts. But for the rest of us, Lord, that you will give us confidence. You will give us trust. You will give us the ability to be what we have been declared, trusting in Christ. All for his glory. Amen.